Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> good morning. It's, uh, it's been a full week and a great week. Uh, if you're curious where Robbie and Katie drummed up this name, Joshib, or as Les reminded us yesterday morning, Yoshib, the Hebrew. Am I saying that right? Close enough. I'm going to confess in the beginning that my Hebrew is probably pretty rusty. But um, King David had his mighty men of valor that fought with him. And uh, a whole passel of them. And out of that passel, the three top guys are mentioned in Second Samuel chapter 24. Of those three top guys, uh, Joshua is mentioned first. And uh, it says of Joshua this, it says that uh, uh, he went out to battle by himself, a, a one to 800, him against 800 guys, and he took them all down. Right. Quite a, uh, a storyline, as uh, if you read through the rest of chapter 24 there, starting in verse 8, 24-8 of Second Samuel. But uh, that's where they... That's where they drew uh, inspiration to name this little guy. I'm going to say this. He's just cute as a bug. And, uh, uh, but the kid has freakishly large hands. <laughs> like he came out of the womb. I'm not, uh, those of you that have seen him already, like they can testify. I think this little guy at a couple days old can palm a tennis ball. I'm not kidding you, man. He's got mitts. So that might be my nickname for him. I don't know. Uh, of course, Josh here is lobbying that everybody just call him Josh and, uh, instead of Joshua. But I think that Robbie's pretty, pretty certain that Joshua, he'll just call him Joshua. That's his name. Um, so, yeah, we're super excited and uh, glad everything. Mama and baby are doing great and uh, they're home resting, which is good. That's what they need to do. And uh, we'll all see him. You guys will all see him soon enough, I'm sure. Uh, but what a, what a great win. Speaking of wins, uh, go Cougs. A little uh, Friday night football update. Uh, we went uh, up against Colfax and beat them uh, in a real back-and-forth game. So now we're 2-0. and Oddly enough, so is WSU for you Cougar fans. <laughs> Was not expected to beat, what were they, number 18, 19, Wisconsin. All right, you guys didn't come for a football update. But I can't help it. I'm just in the mode. It's part of my week now, so... Um, We've been uh, going through the uh, small epistle, four chapters, the small epistle of 2 Timothy, and uh, we have come down to the final chapter, chapter 4, so we're kind of wrapping up 2 Timothy today, and uh, as we've said many times, uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his protege, one of his protégés, Timothy, who who uh, was sent to the city of Ephesus. Uh, to correct some things, to lead the church there, to, to sort some things out, uh, to, to teach the people, to develop leadership, all of these things that uh, Paul had told Timothy to do. You can dig back through both books, really, First and Second Timothy, uh, as well as um, you can see how things started in, in the book of Acts for the church in Ephesus, and then, of course, we have the book of Ephesians as well, so it kind of all ties together. Um, but as we wind down in this book, we're also on this kind of parallel track because, because the Apostle Paul's life is winding down. Like this is the end of it for him. And, and these are perhaps the very last words that he wrote to any one of his, his uh, fellow Christians, any one of his protégés, him and Titus, and there's a whole list of them. But these are his parting words of encouragement to Timothy and uh, I'm summarizing it right out of the chapter in this sentence, in this phrase. Paul's telling Timothy, and I believe the Lord is telling all of us this phrase, preach it and pour it out. Like that should be the mark of our lives as Christ followers, that we're, our lives are all about preaching the Word of God in, in kind of whatever capacity, but obviously it should be happening on Sunday mornings, preaching the Word of God, not a bunch of other stuff, not, not this, not that, not peripheral issues, but preaching the Word of God and pouring our lives out. Let's dive right in for the sake of time. Let's go right in. We'll read the whole chapter. I'll get there with you. 
2 Timothy chapter 4 says this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Not only to me, but also <clears throat> to all those who have loved his appearing. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Antichius, for I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did much harm, did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. That's a tough place to be if you're Alexander the coppersmith. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla, Aquila, and the household of Oniphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Ebulius greets you as well as Brutus, Linus, Claudia, and all of the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit, grace be with you. Amen. Perhaps the last words that Paul had put to paper for Timothy. We're going to dive right in and look at a couple things back to the top. Paul's parting comments there in verse 1. He says, uh, I charge you therefore, I charge you therefore, the word charge there translates as a strong word in the Greek, often translated as this, it's the word testify. It's the word testify. And so the, immediately when I say that word, uh, your mind goes to a courtroom. My mind goes to a courtroom where you have people that are up there to testify to the truth of what's going on in the case. The same word is used in Acts 8.25 in Acts the greater kind of the context of Acts 8 is Peter and the apostles have to confront this guy, Simon the sorcerer, who is uh, kind of fascinated with the idea that somehow he can purchase God's power, that he, can, that he can buy the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he was up to, and obviously it was a, it was a ploy, it was a moneymaker probably in his mind. And Peter's reply to this idea was this, and you have to go all the way through to get to the bottom. I'll start in verse 20. Here's Peter's reply. But Peter said to him, Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray God, <clears throat> and pray God if perhaps the thought, of your, the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Man, that is quite a... That's quite a statement about somebody. And Peter, I mean, we, we studied through the books of Peter. We've studied Peter's character like this guy just tells it as it is. Right? He just puts it out there. And here's your, here's your issue, he says, Simon. Here's your issue. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me. You can see a real, the little change here. Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. That was the power of 
The power of what Peter was talking about was really getting through to this guy. And verse 25 is really where we see this idea of testifying. He says, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Peter is testifying of who God is. He's testifying of what Jesus has done. He's testifying as to what the truth is. That's, a, that's that same idea. If any of us have ever been in a courtroom, if, if any of us have ever had to, to get up on the stand, you know, and, and your palms start to sweat and your brow starts to sweat, like you are expected, you are expected under penalty of law to tell the truth, whatever that truth is. That's that same seriousness. That's that same emphatic statement that Peter is testifying here in the book of Acts. It's also the same idea that Paul is testifying to Timothy. And so here's kind of the courtroom, if you will, if you stay in that analogy. He goes on to say, uh, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, verse 1 says, at his appearing in his kingdom. Paul's kind of describing this court where Paul's going to give this testimony and he's before, the, before God, before Christ, who's the final judge, who will, uh, in the arena, like in that courtroom, but he's saying in a, in a heavenly arena, in a heavenly courtroom, where we'll all give a final account. He says, so I'm just telling you, Timothy, here's how it is right here and right now. He gives us members of the court. He also gives a future reality of the promise. See, Paul never took his eye off the second coming of Christ, and he never took his eye off the kingdom work. It's a great inspiration for all of us. Don't, don't take your eyes off from the second coming of Christ. I, I realize the, the time stamp, right? I realize the 2,000-plus years that have before his uh, Jesus ascension, and today, I get that. And there's a lot of people out there that would just say, ah, that's not real, that's a myth, you know, that's, that's fable. In fact, we watched a documentary this last winter, a few of us did, where statistics are showing fewer and fewer and fewer evangelical believers believe in the second coming of Christ. Few, and the rates, the stats just keep dropping. So never take our eyes off of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And never take our eyes off the fact that we have kingdom work to do. Now, Paul's been in ministry some 30 years. His earliest letters, First and Second Thessalonians, some of the first things that he wrote to any of the churches, he mentions what? He mentions the second coming of Christ. Now here, many years later, three decades later, he expresses that same expectation at the second coming. And he uses that expectation... And it should be something that should be used in our lives. Paul uses that expectation of Jesus' return as a way to motivate Timothy and to motivate the church. He's motivating him. Hey, don't take your eye off. Stay focused. Stay tuned in. And here's the testimony. Here's what he says on the stand. He says, preach the word. He says, preach the word. Verse 2, preach the word. Paul's emphasis on the word of God has been constant from the day of his conversion. Preach the word. Stay with the word. He can't be more emphatic. In fact, there's, there's 36 references to the gospel, to the true gospel in this letter. And 17 references to the false teachings. Uh, here's six examples that <clears throat> to make Paul's point clear to Timothy. I drew six of them out of the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.13, a few verses later, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words, talking about the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.2, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will teach others also. So he's saying, hey, the word of God is so important that it should infect every aspect of, of your thoughts, every aspect of your ministry, every aspect of your life. And this specific one, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, is saying, hey, you need to set up, Timothy, you need to set up a, a, a godly heritage of people to come in behind you. That's what he's saying. It needs to be a multi-generational mentality of, hey, we've got to teach these guys so they can teach these guys, they can teach these guys, down and down through the generations. Church, we have to have the same 
mentality when it comes to the Word of God. That's why we do what we do. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have the Awana ministry, men's ministries, uh, Saturday breakfast, the ladies' ministries on Saturdays. All of that sort of thing is all, uh, is all a platform. They're all platforms to continue to expand and, and, and reach out and teach and preach the gospel of Jesus. The next one there is rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. A servant of the Lord must be apt to teach, able to teach, 2 Timothy 2.24. And the sixth one is the one that we looked at last week, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All of these are part of those 36 references, just six of the 36, where Paul is saying he's puts just this huge, huge focus on the Word of God. It's easy to get our focus off of the Word of God. When is a good time to preach the Word? In season and out of season. My grandma used to say, uh, I asked her one time when I was a kid, I said, hey, uh, grandma, and my grandma was a phenomenal pie maker. I mean, phenomenal pie maker, right? You guys get it? Get the meaning? When I say phenomenal, I'm not joking around. This lady could bake a pie. So I asked her, I said, hey, Grandma, what's your favorite kind of pie? She says, really, I only have two favorite pies that I like. You know what they are? Don't say. Somebody's going to tip my joke. My grandma's favorite pies, two favorite kind of pies, were hot and cold. That's what she'd say. My favorite pies are hot and cold. Hot and cold. She, she was a good pie maker. She enjoyed a good pie. Hey, I like pie. Who doesn't like pie? Well, there's two ways and two seasons in which we can preach the gospel, and that's in season and out of season, Paul says. His emphasis is to be ready. His emphasis is to be ready. Be ready to share the gospel with people. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's when you think it's going to happen. Oftentimes, and our missionaries would probably agree, most of the times it happens when you don't think you're ready is when God orchestrates an event where people come your way, you bump into somebody at the store, at the gas station, in school, wherever, and there's an opportunity there, and you just step forward and you share the gospel. In season and out of season, he says. So how do we get ready? How do we get ready to be in season and out of season? How do we get ready to share the word uh, when it's convenient? I'll put, use these words, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. I'll tell you what it is, is we practice. I don't think this is something that the church does very well. I'm going to be honest. I, I don't think that as just regular, everyday believers, I put myself out in the seats with you guys. I don't think, I don't think that we, I don't think that we, this is just my opinion, I don't think that we do a good job practicing being ready uh this time of year and and you guys are gonna you're gonna have to start throwing stuff at me if you're tired of the football analogies and examples but every day during football practice it doesn't matter what day it is other than a thursday pregame but every day we do drills that are called edds everyday drills and they're those drills and and i know this is true and i got a couple football players here i know that this is true they get really tired of doing the same thing am i wrong silas like sometimes it's just boring really i'm supposed to be here in my stance and just take a left step just take a left step like that seems redundant but it's the little things it's the everyday drills it's the attention to the details in those practice moments that makes a difference in the game am i right we played, what, two games now? Makes a difference. It makes a difference. Everyday drills that focus on the fundamentals, what are, let me ask you a couple questions. What are your everyday drills of the faith? Write them down. Write them down in the margin. Write them down in your bulletin. Write them down somewhere. Because, because it's, it is this important that, that it's going to make a difference when you least expect it to make a difference. So what's your everyday drill with the Word of God? How are you preparing yourself? How, how are we as a church, how are we encouraging one another in this pursuit? In this, it's a grind is what it is in a sense. It's a grind sometimes. I, I understand that. But we need to encourage one another to really dive in to the everyday drills of the faith. The second question is, is 
what is it that you're called, uh, or how is it that you're called to share, uh, and, and, and how are you preparing for that? So it's kind of the same question. Maybe just phrase it different. How are you preparing to share your faith on a regular basis? You can answer for yourself. A little thought for a conversation for later today or through the week. See, Paul's giving Timothy a variety pack of different avenues here on, on where our preparation can be applied. Paul's kind of this list maker type of a writer. And so he says, here, here's how to apply being ready in season and out of season. Here's, here's where it's going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference when you have to convince somebody. We need to be convincing. It's going to make a difference if you have to rebuke somebody. If you're well prepared in the faith, if you're well prepared with the word of God, and you're called to, to come alongside a brother or sister and bring some rebuke for something that you see that's obvious, and you're prepared in prayer, are you prepared in the Word? It's going to make a difference in that moment if you're prepared. If you're not prepared, it's going to blow up in your face like Wiley Coyote, you know, have with an Acme bomb. For those of us that grew up watching, you know, Looney Tunes. Can I get a few head shakes? All right, now we're all awake. It's going to blow up on you. Here's another, where, uh, another place it's, it's specifically applied that we're prepared in season and out of season. That is as if you have to suffer long. If whatever dynamic, whatever situation that you're going through, whatever thing that God has brought your way, if you're not prepared, you're going to want to pull the ripcord. You're going to want to eject out of something that God is saying, hey, I need you to I'm calling you to suffer long in this situation. You won't do it. I won't do it if I'm not prepared. We'll burn out. We'll jump out. We'll run from whatever God is asking us to go through. If we're not prepared, if you're not ready in season and out of season to share the faith, long-suffering is going to be a major issue. The last one that he talks about, he says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and with teaching. The last one there is teaching. The best way I'll tell you how to prepare in just this one sentence. The best way to prepare to share in season and out of season is to share so you can teach somebody else. Statistically, the best retention uh, that, that you can have or that I can have is when I study with the intention of sharing it with somebody else. That's your best retention. They, uh, that's, the, that's the top of the list, and they kind of statistically drop down. Uh, the different ways, whether you're reading, whether you're listening to it, whatever it is. But teaching, teaching is an area that we must be prepared. We're to bring the Word of God to bear in each situation that we're going to face. And we must resist the temptation to treat the Word as if it were filled with just interesting ideas or fascinating theories. That's kind of the social, uh, cultural way of looking at the Bible right now is it's just it's interesting ideas it's theory you know it's it's just you know creation that's Christian's opinion of what happened that's theory you know that's that's a, the kind of the cultural mindset we have to resist the temptation to bend into that rather rather there's two things that the word of God is the word is a mirror and a magnifier it's a mirror. It gives us a true reflection of ourselves. That's what the Word of God does when we read it. When we're looking at it. We're thinking about what's going on in our lives. You think about your own character, things that you struggle with. The Word of God is a mirror that shows us who we truly are. It's also a magnifier, and it gives us a greater view of who God is. So we're told to <clears throat> hold up the Word of God and let God do His work in His people. The reason why, here we go, verse 3. Verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears <clears throat> away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now in the last chapter, Paul kept uh, unpacking this last day's uh, end of days a scenario of what it looks like. And last week we looked at, and you can go back and look at 
uh, the beginning of chapter 3, uh, perilous times, he calls it in chapter 3. Now he takes that same idea, that same idea of these perilous times, these last days, and he says, this is what it's going to look like in another light. In another light, you're going to have people that, that won't stand for sound doctrine. They won't stand for sound doctrine. And because of their fleshly desires, he says, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves, they'll gather around themselves a variety of teachers who turn their ears away from the truth and they turn them to fables. It's going to be a picture of the end times. It requires of you and I as Christ followers to be grounded in the word and to have an elevated discernment. An elevated, there's a lot that's out there. We have more access to information than any generation uh, or all of the generations before us combined. So it requires of us then to have a real tight filter. It requires of us to have discernment to understand, where's this guy coming from? He kind of sounds good. She kind of sounds good. But where are they coming from? You have to do your research. You have to check out the background. You can't fall into this trap of itching ears. No, we need to be grounded with the truth. Grounded with the truth. Paul goes on to tell Timothy that exactly. He gives him these application points. But you be watchful in all things. Verse, I'm in verse 5, 2 Timothy 4, 5. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There's, there's these uh, four application points for all of us. Uh, because this just isn't for church leadership. A lot of people preach First and Second Timothy and Titus as, hey, this is just for people that are in leadership, as if to say that the rest of the church can, can just take a, you know, we can take a vacation from these three epistles. That's not it at all. These are really ap- uh, applicable for all of us. So the first of the application points then that Paul lays out for all of us is to be watchful. To be watchful. I put down these everybody should, <laughs> everybody statements, so it's all of us included. Everyone should learn to be a sheepdog in the faith. A sheepdog in the faith. A sheepdog doesn't chase the sheep, right? That's not a sheepdog. A a sheepdog's job is to watch out for the predators. That's what a sheepdog does. They watch out for the predators. And we should all be in a sense like that. We should all be watching because we have uh, elevated discernment. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the Word of God in front of us. We should all be watchful for spiritual predators. And they're out there, folks. They're out there. So let's not joke ourselves. We need to be watchful, as Paul tells Timothy. Watchful in all things. Elevated discernment. Then we need to look at this idea that everyone should learn to value the uncomfortable. That's the afflictions. Endure afflictions. Everyone should learn to value the uncomfortable. That's a tough one in our culture because we run from whatever's uncomfortable. We don't like it. We'll, we'll trade in a perfectly good automobile just because the seat doesn't, you know, oh, it gives me a little kink in the back. You know, people all over the globe don't even, you know, three times a year they get a ride in a car, Maybe. We, we, we run from the uncomfortable. And I'm not saying that we should like be, you know, uh, uh, diving into it like purposefully because, you know, somehow God's going to bless us more if we, you know, if we're running around looking for persecution. We're running around looking for afflictions. I'm not saying that. But they're going to come. It's just a natural part of being Christ follower. Afflictions are going to come. Rather than either running towards them or running away from them. We need to learn the value, value that's in being in an uncomfortable position, in a, in, a, in a spot of being afflicted. God has a purpose and a plan. If, if you're there right now, I just want to encourage you folks that God has a purpose and a plan in that affliction. Don't run away. Endure it. Like if there's sin involved, run from that. But if it's, just a, if it's just a trial or a tribulation and not a consequence, 
You know, not necessarily like a, uh, some things are a consequence from our sin. That's a little different. But if the Lord has just allowed you to walk through a difficult season, endure it. There's value in being uncomfortable in that way. The third thing is, is everyone should know how to share their faith. Everyone should know how to share their faith. Do the work of an evangelist. This one probably, the last one and this one probably uh, are the most uncomfortable. Because immediately in our minds we say, well, I, 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 I'm not really good at talking to people. I, 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 you know, when, when I start talking about what I believe, I, I get kind of tied up inside and, and uh, I just don't feel like I'm doing somebody any good or, or uh, uh, I'm not sure that I'm communicating well or uh, here's the deal. Let me just stop. If, if you're struggling with how to share your faith and you're a Christ follower, you start with this. Just start with your story. Start with your story. Because you all know your story. You all know what you were like before Christ saved you and after Christ. You all know what you were like, you know, B.C., before Christ. And now you know what you're like, you know, after Christ. After you've trusted Him as your Savior. So just share your story. Here, here's the reality. People are just really interested. If you sit and talk with people, they're interested to know about you, generally speaking. Now, some people are, you know, just all about themselves. So those people are probably going to cut you off in conversation and start telling their story in the midst of your story. Okay, you know, be patient. You know, be patient with them. But just tell your story. Because in your story, the gospel then rises to the top. That should, that's just naturally how it goes. In the story of your conversion, your sinful lifestyle is going to be explained in some way and the fact that you were stopped in your tracks, you repented, you turned, went the different direction, you went towards Christ, you saw that Christ was drawing you, that, that he paid the penalty for your sins, he died on the cross, all those things. John 3.16 should explode at this point and come right to the forefront. And the gospel's going to rise to the top in that conversation. Just start with your story. Don't get all cranked up about making sure you have a ton of bullet points and verses and references. Start with what God has done for you. The last one there is ministry. Ministry. Everybody's in the game. Everybody should be in the game. Now, I have a little caveat that's not in my notes, but that I'm thinking about. There are times, ministry-wise, where circumstances of life cause for uh, a break. Whatever that is. I understand that. But, generally speaking... When it comes to ministry, it's, it's all in. Like nobody sits on the bench when it comes to having a ministry. We're all called to have a ministry and to be operating in that ministry to build the kingdom of God and to serve Christ. So it's really all hands on deck. From conversion to your last breath. No retirement in the body of Christ. It's not there. right? You're... You're not social security, but just your eternal security. It comes at the end that if, you want, if you want to go that way, right? But all hands on deck, everybody's in, should be doing something for the body of Christ. Everybody's in the game, start to finish. There's a few issues that I've kind of touched on a little bit, perhaps. But I've kind of listed these just because I think that it perhaps will spur us to face the uh, giants in the land of what these points of application are. So I've kind of listed, there's top six issues that distract or derail us away from these applications, away from our call to follow Christ. The first one is fear. And fear is a spirit. It's not just an emotion. Fear, as we looked at it several weeks ago, is a spirit. Fear will keep you from doing what you are called to do. So you have to deal with fear. You have to face that giant. Unbelief. Ah, just, I, I just can't rationale that God's going to you know, do this or do that. That's right, you can't rationale it. You're absolutely right in your assessment. That's why we walk by faith, 
But unbelief will lock us down. Unbelief will lock you down in a category where you're, you're just tied. You can't see. You can't discern. You can't understand what God is wanting to accomplish. Unbelief has to be dealt with. The third one, the cares of this world. There's lots of biblical references all through uh, the Old and New Testament, especially in the Gospels. But an issue that distracts or derails us from ministry are the cares of this world. I have to do this. I have to do that. The tyranny of the urgent. The next one is, is the fear of man. Uh, the fear of man. So there's a spirit out there. Again, fear is a spirit. There's a spirit out there that locks you down to what other people may think of you. That, that giant, uh, we've got we to do a David on this thing. We've got to cut the head off, parade it through town. That's what David did to Goliath, right? The fear of man cannot lock us down as Christ's followers. But it's always present. It's always there. The enemy likes to uh, apply that tool specifically all the time. That we're more concerned about what somebody else thinks than what God thinks. We're more concerned about uh, being rejected by man than testifying about God. That's the fear of man. And we shouldn't, that, that, that shouldn't be a part of the equation. And I'm here to tell you, I struggle with it. I struggle with this as much as anybody in this room. I will guarantee it. And you think, right. No way. If you struggle with it, why are you up here? I'm up here. I'm up here. Part of me being up here, other than teaching and preaching the Word of God, proclaiming God's Word, is a weekly exercise for me in overcoming the fear of man. That's how it applies for me, if you want a little insight into between my ears. Because I struggle with it as much as anybody. But it's a giant that has to be dealt with. It'll distract and derail us from what God's called us to do. Criticism and discouragement. If fear of man's not bad enough, <laughs> criticism and discouragement... Uh, not just what other people think, but what other people say, especially if it's a negative. And the fact that uh, we don't think what we're doing is uh, really effective. That's the idea of discouragement. Those things can be kind of silent killers in our ministry, in our Christian walk. We have to be able to rightly deal with those things. The last one sometimes is the worst. The last one that can distract or derail us is these besetting sins. These little things that, or big things that go undealt with in our life, unconfessed, unrepented of. And let me tell you what, Jesus didn't come and give himself and sacrifice himself on our behalf so that 2,000 years later we can just sit around and manage sin. Like, that's not why he died. That's not why he paid for our sins on the cross. So that we could just be good sin managers later on. That we could just kind of be good, you know, flesh managers 2,000 years later. That ain't it, folks. No, we got to put a knife in this one. Besetting sins need to be dealt with. And they will derail and, and pull you out of whatever God's called you to do if you don't deal with them. That's why an elevated uh, amount of transparency... And honesty, being real with the Lord and being real with one another is so critical in the body of Christ and in our Christian walk. Because that's where the, the battle is. Sometimes besetting sins, we, we end up being embarrassed about them. We, we end up being embarrassed because here's the, the hard truth is, is that you may be sitting in a seat where, hey, I've been a Christ follower for 20 years and I'm still battling the same thing and what are all my brothers and sisters going to think of me if, if now I confess that I've been struggling with the same thing that I thought I had victory on 20 years ago so we sit in kind of that seat of shame and embarrassment and un, you know or more and, and now they're all kind of all of these things the, the fear the unbelief the cares of the world the fear of man criticism discouragement they all kind of pile on the top of this besetting sin and we're locked in we're locked in. Hey, Jesus didn't die so you could stay locked to sin. And he definitely didn't die so you could just manage it. 
He died so you could be free from it. He died so that I could be free from it. So Paul goes on to give us then that, a few more secrets to fulfilling our ministry. Look at verse six. I've only made it through five verses. I might have to slice this chapter in half. Nah, the rest of it's pretty straightforward. I'm totally losing my voice, so just hang with me. If it gets real quiet in the end, you'll know what happened. Verse 6, Paul says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the, fi- the faith. The idea there of drink offering is really, a, you know where that's first mentioned? Genesis chapter 35, verse 14, where Jacob poured out a drink offering before the Lord as a sacrifice. You know what happened before he did that? Everybody know the storyline of the book of Genesis? This is in chapter 35. You go back like chapter, what, 30, 31, 32. Uh, Jacob wrestles with God. Jacob wrestles with God, won't let go, bound and determined to win. God's got to wound him, essentially. He's got to touch him, but he was a changed man from that point forward. That was really Jacob's conversion. That's my take on it. That was Jacob's conversion. He was a totally different person. This guy was a, a, a rascal. He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. Him and his mom, you know, plotted for, you know, blessing and all this kind of stuff. Tricked his brother, his older brother Esau. All of that. And now he's a changed man. And you want to see a picture of what reconciliation is like amongst family members? Read the story. Because who's the very first person that before this offering is offered up, who's the very first person that now Jacob and his family bump into? His older brother Esau. His older brother Esau. And you see a totally different picture of Jacob then than before. You see a man that's humble, a man that's contrite. You see, you see a, a, a man that, that is sorrowful for the things that have happened. He's trying to make it right the best he can. You see a totally different picture. And then you have this idea of a drink offering being poured out before the Lord. Kind of the Mosaic law roots of the drink offering. Yeah, just throw some references out there. Part of the sacrificial system to the Lord, Exodus chapter 29, verses 40 and 41 and Leviticus 23:13. <clears throat> you can write those down and look them up at your leisure. But essentially it, pour, it comes down to this. It's the idea of being poured out. And poured out has the idea of a complete giving with no reservation. A complete giving with no reservation. That's the picture that we see of Jacob really. It's a beautiful picture and as him and his brother reunite for the first time after decades you see Jacob uh, coming humbly and completely with no with with no reservation for with a little fear trepidation like he thought his brother was just going to kill him he divides you know his family in two groups and separates them a little bit you know so that and his rationale is as well my brother's got every right to take us out but so if we separate at least some of us are going to survive how would you like to be in one of those two groups (laughs) Maybe we'll be in the back group. (laughs) But you also see as they meet, you see this idea that Jacob is uh, is kind of all in on restoring his relationship with his brother. The liquid, go on to talk about being poured out, the liquid is completely emptied from the cup and totally given to God. And so it was with Paul, and so it will be with all who follow Christ. We're to be emptied and poured out. We're to preach it, we're to preach the word, and we're to take our lives and pour them out on the service of Christ. And that's not easy. That's sometimes really difficult. Sometimes it's awesome. And, and, and we're on top of the mountain. We, we see all these great victories. and we, have, we, have, we, we see awesome things that God shows us. And sometimes we're down in the valley and it's hard and it's tough. And we battle illness. And we battle death. And we battle uh, you know, whatever it is that's in our lives. Whatever it is that the Lord has asked us to walk through, and we go through that tough valley, pour it out, folks. Pour it out. Don't hold anything back. Don't step into eternity holding something in your pocket that was meant to be poured out for the Lord. And that's how our lives are. We're to be poured out for Christ. 
That's what Paul says of himself. So it was with Paul, so it should be with us. He gives us three pictures of what that looks like. and I, I really am kind of uh, love Paul's writing because he, like, he writes in these list style, although I'm not necessarily a list maker, but I like it. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race and I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but all those as well. All examples here of an overcomer. He gives us these pictures. He's, he's fought the good fight. He's went toe to toe. He's finished the race. He didn't give up. Hey, we have a little, where's our runner at? There he is. I knew he'd look up. Saw a little clip on uh, social media. Edmund had his first, first cross country first one and uh, mom and dad that were there videotaping and cheering him on and here he came that was the finish line shot right and so here he comes and what does he do he hears the cheers he hears his mom's he hears his parents and and what does Emmett do you just see him man he's just trucking forward he's trucking he finished the race he finished he didn't give up early he didn't stop on the last corner he didn't give up when it was tough. And Paul's saying kind of that mental picture about his own ministry. Hey, I've finished the race. I've gotten it done. All for a crown. All for a crown, a crown of righteousness. Here refers to, Paul refers to the crown, the victor's crown. The crown that was essentially a trophy recognizing that one had <coughs> competed according to the rules, and had won the victory. Now the crown, uh, as just a topic, is mentioned several times, a couple of those places. The crown of God's people lasts forever. It's kind of a concept that shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, and 1 Peter 5, verses 4. I wonder sometimes, I wrote this in my notes, I wonder some, sometimes, before Paul was a believer, if you know the storyline of Paul the Apostle, before Paul was a Christian, he supervised the execution of the first martyr and then began to kill as many other Christians as he could. He was, uh, he was the number one enforcer. I like to use that term, kind of an old hockey term for my hockey guy back here. You know, the Apostle Paul was the number one enforcer for Judaism. That was his job before he was converted and became a Christian. And so that's what, that's what he did. He just set out. He was going to wipe these guys out. But now, but now, and kind of reflecting on the fact that these are Paul's last words, but the now at the end of his life, he was ready to receive a crown. Stephanos, it's called in Greek. It's likely that he would, in writing this down, he would remember the name of that first martyr who died at Paul's own hands. Stephanos, or we in English call him Stephen. An interesting twist as he's writing these last words, thinking of his last, some of his last uh, uh, events before he became a Christian and how that wordplay comes into, into focus for him. It's a beautiful display. <clears throat> it's a beautiful display of writing, but it also gives us a little window into perhaps what he was thinking. There's also a display of worship going on talking about the crown. The book of Revelation, verse, chapter 4, verses 9 and 11. And Paul's been given, or excuse me, John's been given this vision by Jesus, a word for, to write down of what's going on around the throne. Revelation 4, 9 says, Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever, the verses just before verse 9 Seven, eight, six, seven, and eight describe what those creatures look like and what their role is. But obviously, they're regardless of their description, the idea is that they're worshiping and they're around the throne. Then, verse ten: the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You created all things. 
Those, that, that, that fundamental understanding that, that God is not just the creator of all things, but he has all things in the palm of his hands. And he has a, a plan and a purpose for you and for me. Like Paul, we're looking forward to Christ's return. We're looking forward to these events. Like Paul, we must pour our lives out as an offering to the Lord to receive that crown and to worship. The worship team will come on up. We will close with our last worship song. <clears throat> Encourage you to, uh, if you haven't, if you've missed a few of these sermons, you can go back online and listen to them. Uh, they're all recorded and posted on our website. I think that uh, as we gear up to worship and as we close out today, I can't encourage us enough. Don't miss an opportunity. Don't go unprepared for an opportunity that you can share the Word of God. And along with that, along with that, prepare yourself. Prepare your family. Prepare your kids Encourage one another. Those of us here in the room, those that aren't here today, friends and families that, are, that don't attend, whoever, prepare, uh, encourage the brethren and encourage them to pour out their lives in the service of Christ. We will not regret it, I guarantee. Don't get distracted. Don't get our eyes off of the goal. Pour out your lives in the service of Christ. Where, whatever that is and wherever that happens, that's up to the Lord. But be the believer. Be the believer. Right? I want to slide into eternity with my tank on empty. That's how I want to roll. So let's praise the Lord. Let's worship Him.